In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Welcome back to our number two of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Uh, before we get to our next guest, I just do want to slide in a little note. Uh, we just got a call from a listener in Barnet, Vermont, who's been listening to 550 AM, and he said it's the best we've sounded on that frequency in years. And so we are really happy that 550 AM is powering up and powering through. So um, give it a shout. See what you think about the AM signal on WDEV. Our next guest is Brian Searles of the Vermont Criminal Justice Council. Uh, Brian has been a police chief in South Burlington, Secretary of Transportation. He has a long record of public service, and now he is a member of the Vermont Criminal Justice Council. Brian, welcome. Good morning. Uh, Brian, the Criminal Justice Council has been in existence, uh, I gather, for a relatively short time. Is that correct? Well, in its present iteration, that's true, but... Uh to know the real history, you have to go back about 55 years. Uh, the original council, which was called the uh, Criminal Justice Training Council, was established uh, in the wake of the unrest of the 1960s, uh, and not here in Vermont necessarily, but it was a federal effort to uh, promote police training across the country. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, thousands of officers have been trained at the basic level and in-service level uh, over, uh, over that time. Uh, what happened recently was the Vermont legislature decided that it was time to consider expanding the role of the council uh, to include professional regulation. And uh, uh, the uh, new uh, statute, which uh, uh, increases the mission of the council and changes the name, dropping training, uh, started in October of uh, 2020. Uh, the Criminal Justice Council came into a larger focus recently because of the Grismore case in Franklin County. We'll get to a little bit of that in, in, in a little while. But um, as you mentioned, the law that was passed to create the Criminal Justice Council, um, uh, I'll, I'll read from the, uh, from the uh, law, actual laws, is to, uh, quote, maintain statewide standards of law enforcement officer professional conduct by accepting and tracking complaints alleging officer unprofessional conduct, adjudicating charges of unprofessional conduct, and imposing sanctions on the certification of an officer who the council finds has committed unprofessional conduct. Um, can you tell me about roughly how many cases of unprofessional conduct by law enforcement have come before the council as it's currently constructed, and, and how would one come about well, the, uh, uh, the law includes a mandatory reporting. Uh, so uh, uh, police chiefs, uh, sheriffs, and so on, uh, uh, if they uh, uh, recognize within their department a uh, uh, 
what seems to be a violation of uh, of uh, the professional conduct rules, um, we'll report that. And uh, there have been uh, nearly 200 such reports uh, since the law took effect, and and the period of time actually goes back to 2018 because anything that happened uh, since 2018 was included. Um, uh, most of those uh, are dealt with without formal counsel uh, action, uh, but uh, uh, in uh, nine cases uh, since uh, the council has been dealing with this uh, permanent uh, decertification or permanent revocation of uh, of an officer certification has been a result. Um, the recent uh, Grismore case was the first one that actually went to a full hearing. Uh, so, and I think it's really important to, to to note here that this is this happens as the result of literally uh, 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 hundreds of thousands of of uh, interactions between the police and and the public. Uh, so the the number is relatively small. Uh, police leaders do uh, uh, a really good job of ensuring professional standards uh, within their own departments. So the only thing that we deal with are the exceptions to that. Now, um, how does a chief, a, a typical police chief in Vermont, make the decision? What, what, what are their criteria uh, by which he has to meet to forward a case to the council? as opposed to um, counseling an individual officer uh, on his own? And, um, you know, is there, I'm assuming it's a judgment call there, or are there established criteria by which he must forward something onto the council? Right. So uh, uh, pretty clearly defined what needs to be reported uh, in the law. Uh, and there are three categ- general categories of offenses. Uh, in uh, category A, uh, uh, a felony uh, is is uh, uh, reportable, and any misdemeanor uh, committed on duty uh, that involves uh, uh, or did not involve a legitimate performance of the duty. And uh, then there's a list of of uh, misdemeanors uh, if committed off-duty that would also qualify that include uh, domestic uh, assault, uh, uh, false reports, uh, a DUI, and so on. Uh, In another category, uh, uh, anything that's uh, uh, done on duty and under the authority of the state of Vermont, uh, such as uh, excessive use of force uh, under the authority of the state, uh, also reportable, and then there are some policy infractions uh, that uh, are also reportable. So uh, uh, it's, but it's pretty clearly laid out, and uh, uh, all the reports are are based on what's defined in the statute. If you would like to ask a question of uh, Brian Searles of the Vermont Criminal Justice Council, please consider calling 802-244-1777. We'd be happy to take your call, and uh, Brian would be happy to answer your question. Um, Do you think uh, from the – there has been uh, in the last few years, especially uh, during and after the pandemic – more heightened awareness of some 
uh, police misconduct. You know, we, we understand some of the larger high profile cases, the George Floyd case, for example, you know. Um, but, you know, police officers are the same as us. They're human beings. And um, they are subject to many of the same stresses that we all are and probably more. Um, do you get the sense that there is more emotional or mental stress on police officers now than there was, let's say, before the pandemic? Well, I think that uh, certainly the pand- pandemic uh, uh, had a, an effect on each and every one of us and how we live our lives and so on. And, and uh, you know, given the number of uh, interactions with the public, uh, I think that was amplified um, when it comes to the police. But I think the, you know, the biggest sources of, uh, you know, of stress uh, may be different, <laughs> definitely different than, for instance, when I was uh, involved in this business, uh, are the uh, uh, number of guns on the street, and uh, and the lethality of uh, drugs. So it, uh, I think those are two big factors, along with the pandemic, and uh, more recently, since the pandemic, the shortage of police officers. Every department in Vermont is uh, uh, running below their authorized strength at this point. And uh, do we owe at least some of that to the defund the police movement that uh, came out of the Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd case, all that uh, at some point? Or or is it money? Uh, is it, you know, the, as a public employee, you know, a lot of this, a lot of police officers are, are, you know, would probably tell you they're not terribly well paid. Um, uh, is it is it that or is it the public losing faith in the in the police, do you think? Well, I, you know, the, the um, what the police do and their interactions with the public are certainly more visible now than than they were years ago, uh, due to uh, you know, body cameras and so on. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that uh, you could probably point to specific uh, departments uh, where the defund the police movement was an was an issue. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I look at uh, Burlington as an example. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, I think, uh, you know, people uh, during uh, the pandemic uh, uh, found, you know, were, were pretty happy finding uh, uh, employment where they could work from home. And I think that's had a, had a big factor. Uh, the defund police movement in general, uh, you know, has turned out to be a, a very bad idea. And the effort. Uh, uh, that we're involved in now uh, with uh, uh, the Criminal Justice Council is really the best way to approach um, and, uh, police misconduct, not general defunding. And uh, and I think that uh, has a much better prospect for success. I also would say uh, that, you know, it's important for folks to understand what the council looks like. Uh, it is a large group. It is uh, the, the legislature made a genuine effort to be representative um, in the in, on the council of, uh, of a lot of stakeholders uh, in uh, uh, in law enforcement and criminal justice. So, you know, along with the 
seven members named by uh, Governor Scott, including uh, uh, the chair, who was uh, Bill Sorrell, uh, longtime attorney general. There are 17 others representing law enforcement, civil and human rights groups, crime victim services, cities and towns, and others uh, who uh, who meet to consider these matters. So, uh, and um, a lot of information available on the uh, on the website of the council uh, uh, if people want to take a look. And the and the uh, the the website address is. Uh, it's um, it should be vcjc at uh, reach slash vermont.gov. Cool. Look on the look. Up, go to vermont.gov and you'll you'll find the uh, the council and just click on it. Brian, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, Burlington is moving toward the civilian oversight uh, board. Um, it's been bandied about a little bit, um, and is there? Um, how does that mesh with what the Vermont Council does? Well, it's uh, I'm not exactly sure what's uh, uh, been proposed or under consideration in Burlington, but uh, certainly uh, uh, the Criminal Justice Council uh, is a uh, uh, civilian organization with law enforcement representation and does uh, serve the purpose of oversight. Uh, of both the training of police and the eventual certification and uh, also uh, uh, professional conduct, which can lead to uh, decertification. So, uh, and it applies evenly statewide, as does uh, as as do the uh, training requirements. So, uh, my guess is uh, there's the same uh, goals in mind, but I'm not exactly sure how they match up in terms of what's under consideration in Burlington. Uh, getting uh, to the Grismore case, which was uh, the highest profile um, uh, case that the Criminal Justice Council has had to handle, um, I have a feeling that some people are going to look at the video that was uh, broadcast on, on television during news programs, see what happened, and then wonder, you know, if there are cops who may have done a lot worse than that and still have their badges. What would you What would you say to that guy who's who's thinking that? Well, I would say that this. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, my experience would tell me that that's not the case. And that uh, although I know specifically of cases that have been dealt with in the past that were similar to this, um, they uh, they are not uh, normal uh, and uh, are not in compliance with uh, with the law. So, um, so I would I would say that essentially the statement that others have gotten away with something like this may or may not be true, but they're not relevant. Uh, the case uh, of uh, Sheriff Grismore was an individual case uh, investigated thoroughly, and then uh, there was a, uh, a public hearing before the council, which I'm sure many people have followed, uh, that resulted in uh, revocation of uh, law enforcement certification. Um, the testimony of the deputies about that incident, um, what did that mean to the case? Well, uh, it, you know, the, basically the uh, test 
when it comes to use of force is that uh, that the force used is objective, objectively reasonable to accomplish uh, uh, a lawful result. Uh, and uh, so reasonableness being the key word. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the goal here is to bring the situation under control. And, uh, you know, the council felt uh, clearly that uh, the two deputies had that situation under control. So, oh. therefore, the, the uh, force uh, was not reasonable. Okay. Um, I, I, I do want to invite uh, listeners to uh, ask a question of Brian Searles if they'd like to. You can call 802-244-1777. Um, I noticed that... Um, the uh, Vermont Department of State's Attorneys and Sheriffs is now recommending that sheriffs be required to hold the state's top police certification. Um, and so there are a couple of sheriffs uh, who do not have that certification, and uh, would they have to achieve it in order to hang on to their jobs, or, um, or could they be, would they be grandfathered in? How would that work, do you think? Well, you know, the sheriffs are um, a constitutional officer, so they're in a different category than uh, just about anybody else uh, in our system. Uh, Sheriff Grismore um, is an example of that. He was not a level three certified uh, officer, but you don't have to be to be um, a county sheriff. Uh, I, I believe the change that uh, the Department of State's Attorneys and Sheriffs is looking for would change that. Uh, and uh, and require and, and basically uh, uh, require the same thing uh, that's required of all other full-time law enforcement officers, and that is a level three certification. I'll I'll mention that the um, uh, the uh, department's labor relations and operations director Annie Noonan said that uh, the Grismore case. Uh, happened after uh, their um, uh, discussion of uh, increasing the certification level uh, happened, so that there's um, uh, they weren't they weren't targeting Grismore specifically. In no, that. no, I think that's some. This is you know this has been a sentiment that's been shared by by some in the system for quite some time, uh, but uh, you know it, uh, I think there was a recognition of the fact that. Uh, uh, the sheriffs have always been in a different category because of their uh, elected status. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I seem to recall a few cases here and there where there were uh, some allegations of uh, financial impropriety involving sheriffs over the years. Um, in Caledonia County, not quite a year ago, it was reported that the sheriff there awarded himself uh, and 15 or 16 other employees about $400,000 in bonuses on his way out the door. There was no violation because there was no policy or regulation to prevent it. But a handful of bonuses uh, were over $40,000, and we're talking about taxpayer dollars there. Um, does the Criminal Justice Council delve into finances like this, or is that really not your purview? That's not in our, uh, in our jurisdiction. We stick to uh, uh, what's in the statute, uh, and it doesn't include that. I, 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 I can't speak to the specific case you mentioned. Obviously, but, uh, you know, the sheriff's system is complicated. 
uh, in terms of its revenues and expenditures, uh, for sure. Um, in the event where a sheriff actually is accused of a crime, um, but hasn't, but is, you know, where that allegation is still in process, should a sheriff still be able to continue to represent law enforcement and like, uh, uh, recruiting new business, like, um, you know, offering, uh, patrol services to, uh, a town in the county or, or something like that, like that. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's a matter of, uh, opinion. I think in the case of, uh, of the sheriffs, uh, they have duties, uh, that they are required to perform. And as long as they hold uh, the lawful office of sheriff, um, they're free to perform those duties. Uh, our, uh, you know, our action in the uh, Grismore case was specific to law enforcement certification, but that's not required uh, to carry out many of the duties of the sheriff, and uh, uh, so uh, it, it's really not in our purview. Hmm. Um if you would like to ask a question of Brian Searles of the Vermont Criminal Justice Council, please uh, feel free to give us a call at 802-244-1777. We have just a couple of minutes left. Um, Brian, do you think uh, that um, the, the Grismore case could have a, uh, a positive effect on policing in Vermont. I mean, I'm assuming that there is um, an intent to provide an example of what might happen to an officer if he loses control of a situation. Well, I, I wouldn't uh, uh, <clears throat> want to connect this particular case to that conclusion, but I think in general, uh, first of all, this effort – uh, prof- uh, uh, regulating professional conduct by the police was supported by law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement is well represented on the council. Uh, and, uh, and I think, um, in general, um, our efforts will, uh, deter, uh, some, um, bad police behavior. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I think it's something that's necessary. And not only that, it's, uh, you know, it's an effort, uh, the model of which is uh, under review by uh, other states. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to have a positive effect and, uh, and nobody should uh, construe this as something that law enforcement opposes. Everybody uh, uh, worth their salt and uh, law enforcement that I've ever dealt with uh, really wants this effort to succeed and knows that professional conduct is important to that. As you have been, uh, just, we just have a minute or so left, Brian, but, uh, as you, as we wrap up here, I just wanted to ask you, um, has anything surprised you about your work on the Vermont Justice Council since it's been, uh, reconfigured by the legislature? No, not really. I, um, you know, I, I can't say that I've been uh, uh, at all surprised. I didn't anticipate that there would be, um, you know, a, um, a really huge uh, in cases. Uh, certainly, uh, we've had to staff up to deal with uh, uh, the cases that are under investigation and uh, uh, ones that have uh, uh, resulted in settlements. But, um, you know, it's a still a small percentage. Uh, it's important work. 
but I don't think we've un- uncovered uh, any wave of misconduct uh, or anything like that. Brian Searles, thank you so much for joining us. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, just a quick side note, uh, the AM550 transmitter is up and running and powering through the Green Mountains. It is, uh, we are getting reports from uh, various places, including uh, beautiful Barnett, Vermont, that uh, the signal is coming through loud and clear. So if you've had trouble with the just reaching us on the AM, on the FM signal, rather, you can always try the AM because it's powered up and really good. Um, Commissioner June Tierney of the Vermont Department of Public Service joins us now by phone to discuss some of the many issues that are included uh, with the agency's mission of representing the public interest in energy, telecommunications in particular, but also water, wastewater, utility uh, issues, etc. cetera. Uh, Commissioner June Tierney, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Oh, Brad, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um I wanted to first start talking about um, uh, improved broadband access. Based on what I have seen at the street level, improved broadband access is happening. Um, how would you describe how the state is, is doing? Oh, well, I think uh, the state is moving at warp speed from the dark ages, just a mere um, five years ago, Brad, to uh, really making significant gains in the deployment of broadband in the state, and it's owing entirely to uh, really two very fortunate uh, events. One, uh, oddly, is the pandemic, because that really spurred uh, breakthrough thinking uh, and in all the right places, whether it was at the department or at the legislature or in the private sector, to figure out very quickly how to materially transform Vermonters' connectivity in that state of emergency and get people connected in ways they hadn't been before. And so a lot of uh, vision work was done, planning work, um, emergency funding was found, and the, the will to really make things move forward on the connectivity front in Vermont was, uh, was distilled at that point. And then, fortunately, the federal government um, was able to marshal enormous sums unprecedented sums of money for broadband deployment in um, all 50 states in the country. But uh, the scale of that funding in Vermont was uh, something we've never seen before. And so the combination of those two very fortunate events uh, has resulted in things like what you're seeing at the street level. Small communities uh, across the state are now either connected or shortly going to be connected or have a very realistic hope in, in you know, the space of the next couple of years of being connected to world-class broadband. So I'm, I'm very pleased with what I've seen. Uh, just driving through Fairfax the other day, uh, I saw um, uh, uh, line, lines being worked on. It looked like uh, 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 fiber optic cable was being strung up along the existing power lines and power poles. Um, and I got to think that uh, if you can get two two gigabyte service in Fairfax, something good is happening. Well, that's exactly my view too, and I think the people in Fairfax would agree. 
You can trust your eyes. Uh, what you're seeing is translating to reality. Fibers coming to Fairfax. Um, I noticed um, uh, when Fidium uh, uh, reached out to me uh, back in the summer uh, by email that um, they were advertising, uh, like, let's say, one gig service for 55 bucks a month. Um, and I signed up for it at that point. And then uh, what I'm being offered now is Fidium uh, one gig service at $65 a month. Um, is there something wrong there? That is a good question. And I, I always regret what I'm about to say, which is, uh, the public service department, which is the agency I had, doesn't have the requisite uh, authority to, uh, to follow up and do that investigation, but the attorney general's office does. <laughs> but uh. the question was, what your question was, is there something wrong there? And I think to be fair, uh, I can't say off the top of my head what, what, cause the, the law is, is very, you know, um, how to put it. The, the law is, is clear on the point. It's that I don't administer the law, so I can't tell you off the top of my head whether you have cause for concern or not. You certainly have cause for disappointment. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, uh, how would – can you talk about the other towns, not just Fairfax, uh, that are rural communities where fiber optic cable is is coming? Meaning can I identify them? Yeah. Yeah, that I, yes and no. So the, the yes part of that is there are great resources online that will tell you specifically, and that begins with the Vermont Community Broadband Board's website, which you can access through the Department of Public Service. But I will confess to you, Brad, that I am a middle-aged woman, and my memory for these kinds of specifics is not great at the top off the top of my head. So I'm going to beg off in that direction. I can say with confidence, though, that that the progress is being made statewide in all corners of the state. And it's really owing to fantastic leadership that has been exercised by the Vermont Community Broadband Board under the uh, the leadership of Christine Hallquist, their executive director. We've really been blessed with her services in, as a former executive of, utility, of a utility in Vermont. And we've also been blessed with an enormously experienced and talented board that uh, guides uh, the policy and deployment in that direction. And, of course, the wisdom of adopting the uh, community union district, uh, communications union district policy in Vermont, which uh, has really brought a laser focus on getting broadband to those small rural towns that you're talking about, whether it's all the way down south in Vermont or in the upper reaches of the Northeast Kingdom. Um, it, uh, you know, when you, uh, live somewhere else and, uh, you know, in a more metropolitan area, you get, uh, overwhelmed with offers for five gig service. Um, and, uh, um, can you explain, um, you know, the difficulty in a, in a, a more rural state like Vermont and a mountainous state like in, like Vermont where, uh, what the difficulty is in, in, and has been in getting, um, uh, fiber strung into, into places where it hasn't been. Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, I would I would offer a little reframe there, Brad, because while you may be overwhelmed with those offers in more urban settings, 
the challenges of deployment, um, while they're different, there are significant challenges in both an urban setting and in a rural setting. Uh, and let me explain. If we string fiber in Vermont, we have to traverse terrain that can be challenging for mounting poles and then stringing the fiber. And the odds are pretty good that we're not reaching nearly the density of, uh, of households and businesses that will take the service that you might reach if you string a mile of fiber in a more urban setting. Uh, that said, in an urban setting, to do something similar, you have a lot of uh, disruptions of the already built infrastructure, you know, digging and, and the like that have to be done in order to achieve that deployment. So I think those can sort of net out. But the challenge that is unique to the rural setting is that with the lack of density of potential customers, you then have an economic proposition that's kind of upside down where you're incurring the cost of deploying that fiber and you're trying to do it over, you know, ridges and, uh, and hills and trees that uh, have you know, very different conditions depending on whether leaves are on or leaves are off. And then you've got, uh, you know, the, the prospect of fewer folks taking the service, and that has to, with the cost of the deployment, so has to be paid for. And so that's where the intervention of the federal funding has been absolutely key, because that's what makes the, the deployment feasible now, notwithstanding that the uh, business case otherwise can be quite challenging. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right about that. Uh, especially, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, stringing, uh, cable in difficult areas. Uh, uh, not just around the corner from where I live, uh, I saw them, uh, uh trying to get across a manure pond. It's one you don't want to <laughs> fall into. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, when I, when I first took office, I really was intent on moving us any way possible forward on the broadband deployment front. And that began with setting the tone in my agency by putting pictures on display in my office. And a, a picture that I had just cherished for years was of uh, linesmen with draft horses pulling uh, you know, wires through the backwoods on very steep terrain. It's a, it's a quintessentially Vermont uh, picture of how we get these things done in this state. And uh, while we may have uh, other technology now available to us, there are still parts of the state where that's how we get it done, draft horses and folks climbing you know, poles. Wow. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that, but, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's heavy stuff, and that draft horses is what you would need. I uh, wanted to ask you, since we've had all this flooding stuff, I saw on your website that you were clearing your your uh, uh, building's parking lot uh, yesterday because of flood concerns. Did the did the building get flooded? Uh, no, we were we were spared, <laughs> but uh, we had some PTSD, I think, from the summer, where uh, there was uh, significant damage to the building. And uh, this time around, the Department of Public Service, you know, its offices are on the second and third floor, didn't sustain any damage. And in the summer, the offices themselves were not damaged either, but, you know, the equipment in the basement was. However, we did experience a flood last uh, last January when um, during the ice, you know, the, the very deep freeze conditions here, uh, evidently our, our pipes burst on the fifth floor of the building and we were showered from above, so to speak, and then everything froze up in ice and we were out of our, our offices for several months. 
So there's a little bit of PTSD talking there. Oh, boy, I guess so. I noticed on uh, the website that uh, the public service uh, also handles some water and wastewater utility issues. With the flooding, are you expecting uh, some problems with uh, wastewater utilities? Yeah, I should be clear about that. So I think, you know, in, in due course, some of those issues come to us. Our, our take on that jurisdictionally is mostly economic, meaning when a, a water company uh, is, is, you know, looking at its rates and trying to figure out its capital investments, say, like in the wake of a flood, uh, there may be a need for them to come to the Public Utility Commission and uh, apply for higher rates, for instance, and then the Public Service Department weighs in on, on that request for rates. But when it comes to you know, infrastructure damage and the immediate uh, assessment of that and, and also coping with the uh, systems that aren't functioning, that would be something that the Department of Environmental Conservation would be handling over at A&R. Right, right. Um... Uh, I did want to ask you about, uh, uh, in a very hopeful way, about uh, improving cell service. Uh, as you know, one of the obstacles for people and businesses coming to Vermont uh, is that that level of connectivity with their cell phones, since so many people don't even use landlines anymore. Um, uh, how was that going? I, I know that there was a, about a year ago there was a drive test where cell service was um, examined carefully and measured in lots of places around the state. How did that go? Um, uh, what does the future, the the near future, look like? Yeah, so there was really a lot of things to be said on that point, Brad. Uh, for one thing, the the drive testing that we've been doing uh, has consistently shown what we all know to be true, which is that what uh, is advertised, <laughs> to, to come to your point earlier about having been offered 50 and then 60 or $65 for service, what's advertised for cell service doesn't always match up with the reality we know on the ground. And I have to say with, uh, with all due modesty, uh, the Department of Public Service work in that direction, doing those drive tests has really been critical nationwide in moving the discussion forward at the Federal Communications Commission about um, reconciling the, the maps on the ground with the maps in the executive boardrooms of cell companies to make sure that uh, that reality is, in fact, being faithfully advertised. So, in turn, this has led to new energy, I think, at the Federal Communications Commission to uh, also up the nation's game on cell service. Uh, here in Vermont, uh, the Scott administration certainly has been trying to do that. We have, uh, for several years in a row, sought sizable capital appropriations in order to expand the availability of cell service in the, in the state. And unfortunately, I don't think the, uh, the political will is there yet to do for cell service what the state succeeded in doing for broadband. And I think that's, um, you know, it's partly understandable because uh, there comes a point where you have to keep an eye on how many balls you're juggling, and also you have to look at the dynamics of, of the marketplace. And on, on the broadband front, as I said at the top of the hour, we were in a sense blessed by the pandemic because that generated such a state of urgency about getting people connected with broadband that we were able to break through some you know, clusters. But those kinds of breakthroughs haven't happened yet in the cell service arena. And when they finally do, I think, uh, and we come to the understanding that whether we like it or not, a certain amount of public investment will be necessary in order for us to fix the uh, 
you know, the business case gap that there is between what you would invest in self-service to make it what we uh, would like it to be and uh, what a business would say it can justify from, you know, its, its, its profit-generating uh, vantage point. If, if the business case isn't there for private capital, they're not going to invest. And you have to ask yourself, how long are the modules going to put up then with uh, a state of, of self-service that is incomplete or that uh, is clearly uh, lacking because the investment to deploy self-service isn't being made? Yeah, I, I, you can certainly – you can certainly understand uh, how, uh, let's say, uh, a, a legislator who is an appropriator would feel about looking at a very profitable company like AT&T and Verizon and then you know, handing them money to build a cell tower that is only going to make them more money. I certainly can understand it, but then I think to myself, your constituents don't understand it because day after day they're going without the cell service. They want the cell service. It's uh, and, and it is regrettable, believe me, uh, that, that uh, private capital doesn't make up its mind to do this thing. I think it's one of the travesties of what occurred in 1996 when we had the Comprehensive Telecom Reform Act in the United States, and a very clear decision was made to carve out cell service and broadband from state regulation. But that is the fact, and that's what America's been living through by way of consequence. And so cell service is inadequate in many, many parts of the United States for that very reason. And as long as there's no legal requirement uh, for that investment to be made, and as long as cell service and the like are not classified as public necessities the way, say, your electricity is, uh, you're not going to be able to assert the kind of public policy pressure and, and obligation, really, that uh, you have for um, provisioning electricity to households. And so that's why we're stuck in this place where if we don't choose to put our public dollars toward it, uh, that's not going to change. We have to overcome that traditional objection. Sure. Uh, we do hear uh, from time to time there's a new cell tower going up, you know, in a small community. It would be the talk of the town for a while. Um, are, are, there, are there more going up? I would say that the pace of deployment is pretty constant. So I, I can't say that there are more going up than before, but there's a steady stream. And uh, the work that the department did this summer on you know, really reaching out to find out from the public what's important to you about siting and the siting process, I, I hope will help to accelerate further deployment. Because, uh, you know, as you pointed out at the top of this conversation, the the ubiquitous and uh, really unremarkable availability of cell service throughout the state is absolutely essential for us to thrive, whether it's for safety reasons or, or business reasons or just, you know, how we communicate with each other on the go. Um, uh, Commissioner, I, I, uh, in the couple minutes we have left, I want to uh, talk with you about um, electric uh, power uh, demand. As we see more electric vehicles uh, slowly coming online, more heat pumps for heating and cooling, um, are you expecting an increase in, uh, in, in a significant increase in demand for electric power? So this is a, a topic that can be very challenging to get your arms around. So uh, the answer to that is yes, and hopefully not as much as might be if we don't do good efficiency. How's that for an answer? <laughs> Um, and and the uh, efficiency, of course, is very important. Um, and uh, I understand that there's just that work just keeps going and going. 
It, it does, and it's really fascinating because you know, on one hand, yes, we are anticipating that people are going to use more electricity, and we want it to be renewable electricity, of course. But Vermont's uh, history is actually of being very uh, efficient in its use of electricity. It's a fact I'm very proud of that I brag about it at every opportunity I get in national conferences. And that's a function of, you know, our being Yankees and uh, being at the uh, the end of a lot of these distribution, um, you know, pipelines, if you will, for things that uh, generate our electricity. We've just, we've had to make do with less. And so that's uh, pretty much bred into our DNA. And it's a challenging moment in, in public policy because at this moment we're saying to Vermonters, use more, please use more electricity, less fossil fuels. But we do need to keep saying, as you use more electricity, please do so in the most efficient manner possible. And then to add to the complexity further, Brad, something I'd really like to get out to Vermonters is that, uh, oddly enough, the most important thing that you can do as you curb your use of electricity, uh, say for heating your home, for instance, is to pay attention to weatherization. You know, in, in other words, uh, you know, fuel up the envelope of your house so that you're not leaking heat. And that if you do that, you're going to take the first big step toward using as little electricity as possible to heat your home. Thank you so much. Uh, our, our thanks to Commissioner June Tierney of the Vermont Department of Public Service. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.